book of Nehemiah. We have been in Nehemiah chapter 3, and uh, we have been talking about these gates, and uh, we saw how that these gates are really a picture of uh, what our church needs, uh, the emphasis that we need to put on things, and all that uh, uh, we really need to focus on. Nine gates that represent the entering into this city, the city being a picture of the ministry and the work of God in the Old Testament, us knowing that in the New Testament, the local church, the body of Christ, meeting together the way God intended it to do in the book of Acts, meeting on the first day of the week, just like the Bible lays it out. Uh, that's exactly what we are to do. We are the program of God, and coming into this church, there should be some avenues of gates, so to speak, that we, uh, uh, opportunities of ministry that we take. We've talked about a lot of them. Last week, we talked about, we began focusing on the last two, <clears throat> and we saw how that these last two, uh, down here in verse uh, 27 and 28, it says, After them the Tekonites repaired another piece over against the great tower that lieth out even to the wall of Ophel. From above the horse gate repaired the priest everyone over against his house, and after them repaired Zadok, the son of Emer, over against his house, and after him repaired Shemaiah, the son of uh, Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate. Two gates we talked about here that have a double emphasis for us. And they represent the most important doctrine anywhere in the Word of God, and that is the doctrine of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week we talked about the horse gate, and we talked about how that the Bible talks about the armies in heaven that follow the Lord Jesus Christ, how that's a picture of us, we coming back with the Lord. And we talked about this gate having two perspectives, one for you and for me, the horse gate, that's where they took the horses in, and the east gate, and that's where the prince, the king, went in. And we talked about the... Uh, horse gate last week. Simply, what does the second coming of Christ mean to you and me as a believer? The emphasis we need to have in our life. We talked about it being the theme of, of the Bible and everything that we do as Christians. We need to have thought in, that thought in mind that the Lord is coming back, never losing sight of that. And today we're going to talk about the East Gate. I want you to take your Bibles and turn back to Revelation chapter 19. We were there last week for a a short time, and we talked about just a couple of verses, but we want to look at it today in a greater way and really focus on the second coming of Christ from God's standpoint. Now, I must say, this is going to be a bit of a theology lesson today, uh, yet it's going to be a very interesting theology lesson. In fact, I can probably safely state this. If you pay attention today, and you can really write fast, you probably will go out of here today knowing everything there is to know about the Bible from beginning to end as far as how it runs. I'm not saying you're going to know all the little intimate details, but I'm going to give you today, in the course of our study, I'm going to give you the Bible in a nutshell. Now, people look at the Bible and they think, well, how does this fit and how does this fit? I learned this a long time ago. The learning of the Bible is simply this. If you can get where it starts and where it ends and the main events in between, then everything else you hear the rest of your life, you read, you study, you're just going to put on that kind of timeline uh, that the Bible is. The Bible runs a course of 7,000 years. It starts with Adam and Eve in 4004, and it winds up with the second coming of Christ sometime uh, any minute now. So it, that's the course. And once you see the events in the Bible laying out along that course, the Bible becomes pretty easy. Now, in our study of the second coming of Christ, we kind of got to do that. And uh, I know I talk fast, but I'm interesting. I know I talk fast, but I have a lot of things to say. And I only have a short time to say it in. So this is going to be a theology lesson, because the greatest doctrine in the Bible is the doctrine of the second coming of Christ, and we've got to go through this to get it. So uh, bear with me, and this is one tape you want to get, I'm sure, and uh, we just had a price increase, they're now $100 a piece. But anyway, uh, if you want to get some your Bible down, this is how you do it. And when we're done this morning, you'll have a pretty good idea of how the Bible lays itself out. And then the rest of your life is just a matter of putting these together. On a Thursday night when we have our Bible study and somebody asks a question, from this point on you'll be able to say, I know where that goes, that goes right here. Uh, I preach next week or sometime down the line or somebody else preaches, uh, you'll say, oh, I know where that goes, it goes right here. And what we're doing today is giving you the skeleton and then the rest of your life all you have to do is put the meat on the bones and you're, you're ready to roll. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. We love you. We ask you to bless us today as we come to your word. And we'll thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. For his sake we ask it. Amen. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Let me just say this. There's two passages in the Bible that are the greatest two passages on the second coming of Christ. One in the New Testament, one in the Old Testament. We're going to look at them both today. Without a doubt, 
the greatest passage in the New Testament on the second coming of Christ would be Revelation chapter 11. It's the last account in the Bible, and it is the most detailed and gives the most impact. Now, I told you before that the doctrine of the second coming of Christ is the greatest doctrine in the Bible, and every book of the Bible is just filled with it. For every verse you give me on eternal security, this or that, whatever your subject may be, I'll give you ten on the second coming of Christ. Ten to one. There's more references to the second coming of Christ in the Bible than any other subject. When you start reading through the Bible and you find the phrase, that day, the day, the day of the Lord, context will always be the second coming of Christ. You can just stop right there, put your little note down or make a mental note. What I'm reading has something to do with the second coming of Christ. So he says in 1911, we talked about some of this last week, and I saw heaven open. Told you last week how the two times that heaven opened. Once in Revelation chapter 19, once in Revelation chapter 4. And behold a white horse. We talked about the white horse rider. And he sat upon him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness doth he judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth go the sharp sword, with it he should smite the nations, and he should rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and a Lord of Lords. Now I want to explain this verse. I'm going to go through it here, and I'm going to show you what you're dealing with. This verse is the final uh, verses in the Bible that deals with the second coming of Christ, and it shows the coming Lord uh, as He comes back to earth. Now, the first thing, He's on a white horse. We talked about that last week. The Bible says He's called faithful and true. He's coming back to set up a government. A government. Isaiah chapter 11 says that it's going to be a government of righteousness. He's coming back to set up, excuse me, Isaiah 9, 9 verse 11. He's coming back to set up a government. That government is going to be built on faithfulness and truth. And the Bible says that he's coming back to make war. He's going to destroy the Antichrist and all the armies when he shows up. And the Bible says that he makes that war in righteousness, and he judges in righteousness, and that's how he makes war. In other words, it's the right kind of war. Somebody asked a question in Bible study last uh, Thursday night about, uh, as a Christian, how do you deal with the concept of war? Should you go to war? Bible says, thou shalt not kill. And I asked about that. We talked about that. But in this case, here is a war that is a righteous war. Wars exist on this planet because of sin. And as long as there's going to be sin, there's going to be wars. Whether wars are moral or immoral is indifferent, there's going to be sin. Some wars are very justified. Some are not justified. But in this case, this will be the only war in the history of mankind that will be run right, and it will be run in righteousness by a righteous judge, and he's going to make war from the Word of God. And the Bible says that his eyes are as the flame of fire. You see those eyes in the Revelation chapter 1 and 2. You see it back in the Old Testament. And it talks about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and His judgment. And it talks about how that His eyes are full of fire. That means the judgment of God is going to fall on the Antichrist and the nations. The Bible says He has a vesture dipped in blood. You go back to Isaiah chapter 63. And He talks about here how He treadeth the winepress. I don't know if you know what that means or not, and I'm just kind of giving you an overview of the second coming of Christ here so you get an idea. The Bible says that when he comes back, the Antichrist is all amassed down in the valley of Armageddon, and they're going to attack the nation of Israel. They've got the nation of Israel killed down to a remnant. And in that valley of Megiddo, uh, all the Antichrist army, millions and millions and millions of men, are amassed to wipe out the remaining Jews and the nation of Israel. And right at that moment, right at that moment, when they're all surrounded, well, here's another movie plot. We talked about the movie plots last week. Here's one. You got the, you got the settlers in the old wagons, and the Indians are all around them. And they're circled down there, and they're shooting, and the Indians are just, we're going to wipe them out down there, and they're just, just whittling them down. And right before they all get wiped out, and the Indians mass, what happens? Off in the distance you hear, here comes the cavalry. That's what's going to happen. Jews are going to be down in that valley. And they're going to be surrounded. 
A hundred million troops of the Antichrist have been posed to wipe out the nation of Israel, and by that, the Antichrist is going to rid himself of the plague of the nation of Israel that stops him from uh, taking Jerusalem and being the true God that he wants to be. And right at that moment, Matthew talks about, lift up your head, your redemption draweth nigh. Right at that moment, Revelation chapter 19, here he comes on a white horse leading the armies and the cavalry come just at the right time and wipes out the nation of Israel. Isaiah chapter 63 talks about that wine press. It talks about how that he tramples the nation, uh, the nations and the armies of the nations like somebody treading in a wine fat of grapes. And it talks about the blood sprinkling on his garments. And this is the great second coming of the Lord Jesus where he comes back and he's crowned, as the Bible says, King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Now, Revelation chapter 19 shows you the power. Revelation chapter 19 shows you the impact. Revelation chapter 19 takes all of the Old Testament passages and prophecies and finalizes them in one series of verses that show us very clearly and plainly the Lord coming back and all of the righteous applications of it. That's the greatest set of verses in the New Testament on the second coming of Christ. Now, let's look at the greatest one in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14. The greatest in the Old Testament. Zechariah chapter 14 is an incredible, a credible uh, passage that deals with uh, all of the things that uh, is going on here. Zechariah chapter 14. Get my pages to quit sticking together here. Zechariah chapter 14, verse 1. Now here it comes. This is an Old Testament passage showing you very clearly. It gives you extra information. See, over in Revelation chapter 19, you got the battle. You got the horses. You got all those things laid out. Now you're going to get how it really lays itself out and you put the two together. Verse 14, verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord. See, there it is, day of the Lord. Now watch, the, watch how he uses the day of the Lord that day and the day in this chapter. Behold, the day of the Lord. Anytime you find where it says the day of the Lord, the context is going to be the second coming of Christ. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem, Revelation chapter 19, to battle. And the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished. And half the city shall go forth into captivity, and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then shall the Lord go forth, here he comes, Revelation 19, and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. That's back in Joshua's time. And his feet shall stand on that day, there it is, upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem, on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall clave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west, and there shall be a great valley. And half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And he shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azel. Yea, and ye shall flee like as ye fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all his saints, there we are, with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, nor day nor night, but it shall come to pass that in the evening time it shall be light, just like it was in Joshua's time when he extended the daylight for battle. And it shall be in that day that the living water shall go up from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea, in the summer and in winter shall it be. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day, shall there be one Lord and His name one. You know what His name is? The Word of God, Revelation chapter chapter 11. So we see that Zechariah chapter 14 talks about that great account in the Old Testament. You saw how the day of the Lord, that day, uh, the day uh, all the way through the Bible, and, and the Bible is filled with it, built around Jerusalem, the city of God. I want to say something about this. Jerusalem, without a doubt, is the key to all history. Jerusalem, the city of God, all the way through the Bible, if you're paying attention, you're told that that's where God's plan is going to unfold. It's going to unfold. You know, back in the distant past, if you'd go back to Isaiah, here comes your history lesson now, here comes your Bible in a nutshell. If you'd go back to Isaiah chapter 28, Ezekiel chapter 14, you'd find that there was a time when the devil, as we know him, was not the devil. He's called Lucifer. 
and he is set up in a place where he's over all of God's creation. The Bible calls him the anointed cherub that covers the throne. You had God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, and then you had a created being called Lucifer. And Lucifer was over all of God's creation. And you know where the seat of God's creation was back then in that distant past, someplace before Genesis chapter 1, verse 1? It was Jerusalem on this earth. I don't have time to go in to show you how the, the universe has been restructured with the fall and all that, but there was a time when the earth was at the top of it and Jerusalem was the pinnacle of it and all of God's creation that He made and all the heavenly host of angelic beings worshipped God and there was one being that sat in Jerusalem that was the caretaker of everything that God had and God made. His name was Lucifer. The Bible says he was king. But he wasn't satisfied being king. Ezekiel chapter 28, Isaiah chapter, or Ezekiel, Isaiah chapter 28, Ezekiel chapter 14 says that in his heart, pride lifted him up. He wasn't satisfied with being what God gave him, like a lot of God's people. He wanted more. And he said in his heart, I will be like the most high God. He said, I'm going to overthrow God and I'm going to take Jerusalem and I'm going to be God. Remember when the devil showed up in the New Testament in Matthew there and he tempted the Lord Jesus Christ? What was the, what was the one thing that he wanted Christ to do? He wanted Christ to bow down and worship Him and say that He was God. That's always been what He's wanted. Because as God, He gets Jerusalem and He wants Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city of God, is the center. Well, you know what happened. The whole universe is thrown into chaos. The whole universe is thrown upside down. And when you find in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. That's the original creation where Lucifer, and then the next verse says, and the earth was void and formless and darkness was on the face of the deep. There's the catastrophe. Somewhere in between there, the fall of Lucifer, who now becomes Satan, and he has one goal. One goal. That is to get back in Jerusalem and to get Jerusalem and crown himself as king because he's kicked out. Now, I don't want to give you the suggestion that, that God was kind of walking around in heaven and some angel come up and says, Hey, God, you don't know this, but the Lucifer's causing some problems. Oh, he is? Gee, what am I going to do? Well, he's going to overthrow you. Well, oh, just kick him out. Get off. No, God knew what was going to happen. God is infinite. God is all-knowing. And God in His original plan knew what was going to take place and He allowed it to take place because He says, you know what? I will interact my plan right through the devil and the devil, as wicked as he is, and he's going to burn in the lake of fire for eternity, I'll use him. I'll use him in the plan for man. I'll use him in the plan for earth. Because i got a plan going down here that someday we're going to put this thing back the way it was and I'm just going to carve out a little time period right now called time and I'm going to allow every man and woman on this planet to make a choice if they want to go and be with me or not. I'll use him. So I want you to understand that. It wasn't like, oh God, oh God, the devil's tearing the thing up down there. Oh, what am I going to do? Oh, I know. No, it wasn't that at all. God is sovereign and God is in charge. So what does God do? Genesis chapter 1. He puts a garden down in Eden. And he puts a man and a woman down there. And what does he tell them? He says, be fruitful, multiply, and what? Replenish. Put something back that was lost. Because when Satan fell... The Bible says he took a third of the angels with him. They become what we commonly call demons or devils. So he puts it back down there in Genesis. He puts Adam and Eve down there in the garden, and he gives them a commission. What happens? You don't go one chapter, then the old devil shows up again. The old devil shows up again. You know that Adam is called the first Adam, Christ is called the second Adam? And you know in the line of Adam, the line of Christ, you realize the promised seed comes from one of Adam's boys? You know what the devil did? The devil showed up down there and he said, God has reconstructed his plan. He's put Adam and Eve down in a garden right smack dab in Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is going to be. And if they live forever, they're going to be king and they're going to rule. So what did he do? He showed up to Eve. The rest is history. 
and man is thrown into sin. Devil walks out the door laughing. Destroyed God's plan. No, you didn't. You're part of God's plan, whether you like it or not. Shall we go down through history? What do we find? We find Noah. We find at that particular time, the earth is wicked. The world's in sin. In fact, the Bible says that all that man thinks to do is against God and God's plan. God looked for a man. God found a man named Noah. And God said to Noah, Noah, I want you to build an ark. And all the people that love me are going to get in the ark. You realize in Noah's time, by a conservative estimate, there's probably four and a half, maybe five billion people on planet Earth, and only eight people got in the ark? This world was wicked. And they got on. And God wiped the thing out. And when Noah stepped off that, stepped off that ark, he was the sole possessor of planet Earth. And God said, okay, from you, I'm going to bring a man named Abraham. So some time passes. On up into Genesis. Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 18 and 19. And you have a man named Abraham. And he's down there and God says to Abraham, you know what? I like you, Abraham. We get along really good. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to buy faith. You're over here in Babylon. You're over here in the Ur of Chaldees. You're over here in Saddam's country. You're over there where Saddam Hussein is, over there in Iraq and Iran. You're over here right now. And you know what? I got a land for you over here that I want you to be king of. And in time, through your loins, the great king of kings is going to come from. So I'm going to call you out by faith. You don't know where you're going. You've never been there. You have to take my word for it. Abraham, come on down and let's go over to Jerusalem. Well, Abraham heads to Jerusalem. I'm making a long story short. He gets to Jerusalem, where Jerusalem is going to be. Right where all the temple is going to be. And all those things are going to enact. And you know what? From Abraham comes Jacob. And from Jacob, God says, you're going to have 12 boys. And those 12 boys are going to become 12 tribes. In fact, Jacob, I'm going to change your name. I'm going to call you Israel. And from Israel, you're going to have 12 boys. They're going to make 12 tribes of Israel. So the 12 tribes come into play. But all the time they're down there, all the time they're out there, I mean, the devil's hard at work. God says to Jacob, well, you know what? You don't know this, but there's a prophecy that needs to be fulfilled. So I'm going to take all you people, all your sons, and I'm going to send you down into Egypt. So we have the story of Joseph and how all that unfolds, how the children of Israel get down into Egypt. And uh, they're down in Egypt 400 and some years and, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, of course, the Pharaoh that knew Joseph dies and they get another one and the devil makes sure this one isn't friendly and he persecutes them. They probably build the great pyramids and he, he kills them by the millions. You know why? He's trying to wipe them out. He's happy. He has them enslaved in Egypt and it looks like they're not going to get out and it looks like finally now the devil is going to keep the people of God down in Egypt in an iron furnace and butcher them and kill them and work them to death and starve them to death and kill them. And the devil is just as happy as it's going to be because he's got plans for Jerusalem. But oh, but what is happening? God always messes up the plan. God sends them a deliverer, Moses. Moses shows up. Kind of looks like Charlton Heston. He shows up. He walks up to Pharaoh. Kind of looks like Yul Brynner. And he says, let my people go. Kind of like Martin Luther King. And, and so, so and, and Pharaoh says, I'm not letting them go. Devil says, don't you let them go. He says, I ain't letting them go. Well, let me tell you something. By the time God got through with Pharaoh, Pharaoh said, you can go. So what happens? They took off down the road. Pharaoh said, well, says to Pharaoh, don't let them go. Pharaoh says, I'm going to wipe them out. Goes after them. They get to the Red Sea down there, you know, and, and uh, oh, there's that big body of water. And uh, they said, what are we going to do? God said, I'll take care of you. You're my people, and you're going to the promised land. And he split that Red Sea, and we want to cross that, uh, that river bottom, or that sea bottom, just like it was dry land. They got on the other side, you know, and they looked around, and Pharaoh says, oh, devil says, oh, watch me use God's plan. And he goes right down through there, and God says, uh, okay, boys, you angels that are holding back the water, let her rip. Down they went, man. Drowned them. All these liberal theologians who like to make fun of the miracles of the Bible. You know what they tell you? They say, well, the Bible really didn't mean that. It wasn't the Red Sea. It was the Sea of Reeds. 
And the water was only, it wasn't really a miracle. The water in the sea of reeds was only four inches deep. You see how God fixes people? God says, God divided the Red Sea through a great miracle and drowned Pharaoh's army. The liberals say, oh, no, 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 no. There are no supernatural miracles in the Bible. You misunderstood that. It was the Sea of Reeds, and the water there was only four inches deep. Still a miracle. Whole of Pharaoh's army drowned in four inches of water. You don't beat God. You don't beat Him. Idiots. You know what? If they spent as much time studying the Bible and loving God as you're trying to get out from under it, we'd have revival in this world. Well, you know what happens. They go on a journey. A journey from Egypt to the promised land. Takes them 40 years. They could have got there in two weeks. We won't get into that. I'll preach that to you some other time. And they go down there, and when they go into the land down there after 40 years of wandering, and Joshua, now we're at Joshua and Judges, and they go into the land, they're looking for a king. And finally they get a king, David. Making a long story short. And they established a kingdom. And they... Greatest period of time. Now they've, they've come all the way through the first part of the Bible, and now they're in the land. 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. That's where we're at. We've come a long way now. We're almost halfway through the Bible. They're in the land. And this is the greatest time of Israel in Jerusalem. The greatest time. David, type of Christ, is on the throne. Solomon, a type of God the Father, is on the throne. And Israel is at rest and peace. And the whole world is looking at it. And the devil says, I want it back. So what does he do? What does he do? He gets them to disobey God's word, fall in love with other religions, bring in all these other gods, because he knows that God will not stand for that. And the devil's not dumb, folks. He knows that he can't wipe out the nation of Israel, but he knows that if he can get the nation of Israel to do wrong, God will come down and wipe them out. So, boy, he takes them into, he takes them into apostasy. And the nation of Israel falls apart. And, boy, all 1st, 2nd Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles, there's nothing more after Solomon, a picture of the kingdom being torn in half with the boys of Solomon's boys, and it goes downhill, and finally in 606 B.C., God has enough, and he sends Nebuchadnezzar down and Shennacherib down, and they destroy Jerusalem, and they, they take them into captivity, and for 70 years, the devil has a ball in Jerusalem. Laughing. It's his. And the whole world now is under Gentile domination. Run by the devil who runs these Gentile nations. The Bible tells you that. So they go back after 70 years in Ezra and Nehemiah. And they try to rebuild. And we get some great pictures of, of how to build a church from all of that. But you know what? They never become what they once were. And for 400 years, for 400 years, God writes nothing to any man. There's no more visions. There's no more God speaking. In fact, the theologians call it the 400 silent years that God doesn't speak to man. And then suddenly, around 3 or 4 B.C., some old guy with a leathern girdle, locust juice seeping out the side of his mouth, must have been a rough-looking guy. He comes down there and he says, Behold, the king of the Jews is here, the Lamb of God. God sent this world his son. But you ever study Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? When he comes, he comes to who? Israel. He comes, to, he comes to right there in the land where they're at, in Bethlehem, right outside of Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem now is in the hands of the Romans. The devil's got control. But it's God's country. It's God's city. And it's God's people city. And the whole history is nothing more than one battle back and forth. You know what happens. Christ shows up, portrays himself as the king of the Jews. Talks about Jerusalem being the city of God. You know what the devil does through the Romans and the scribes and the Pharisees? They kill him. They kill him. Make a long story short, God gives the nation of Israel a couple of more chances. By the early part of the book of Acts, they dump it. By Acts chapter 7, God's finished with the Jew. In comes the church age. In comes the Gentiles. Peter passes off the scene, the apostle of the Jews. Paul comes on the scene, the apostle of the Gentiles. And we have the church age. They're first called, Acts, or first called Christians in, in Acts chapter 11 and 12 in Antioch. And off it goes. Off it goes. 
God right now has put the nation of Israel in a back burner. He's calling out a church body, you and me, to carry the gospel. But he's not done with Israel. Israel's in apostasy. Israel's going to have to go through some things and learn some lessons. And Israel's going to have to go through the great tribulation period. So some time passes. You know what happens in the church? You know what the church age is? The church age is nothing more than two guys fighting all over about Jerusalem. It's all that it is. You're going to see that in just a little bit. It's all that it is. You fight the Crusades. 12, 11, 12 Crusades for a thousand plus years. You know what it's all about? Roman Catholic Church wants Jerusalem. The Muslims want Jerusalem. They fight it back and forth. Millions of people are killed. I mean, it's a terrible thing, but it's all about Jerusalem. It's all about Jerusalem. It's always been about Jerusalem. Always has been. Always has been. And finally, right around the turn of the century, you know, uh, you have World War I. And without going into a lot of detail, World War I got the land ready for the Jew because the whole shape of Europe changed in the Middle East. And World War II got the Jew ready for the land. And in 1948, on May the 12th, they became a nation again. And God started a time clock winding down for the second coming of Christ. He says, it's coming. That's the last sign you get, folks, if you're paying attention. The last sign the church got from God was the establishment of the nation of Israel as a nation. You know what we got now? We got the Palestinians, don't want them in there. We got the Liberation Armies, don't want them in there. We got all the Middle East, don't want them in there. India, don't want them. Egypt, don't want them. Pakistan, don't want them. Nobody wants them. Every Muslim kid from the time he's two years old and can think and reason is told that the Jew is bad, that they're gonna, and they live for one reason, that is to wipe out the nation of Israel. The whole world is against the Jew. And the Jew says, I don't care, I'm against the whole world. He's a tough little guy. Because God said, I'll bless those that bless thee and I'll curse those that curse thee. And he says, you'll be like that Israel, you're like that burning bush that Moses saw on Mount Sinai. It was a bush that was burned but will not be consumed. And you will be beaten, you will be burned, you will be murdered, but you will not be consumed because... That city's for you. And I'm going to give you my son as your king. And I'm going to give you a bunch of other New Testament believers who are going to get bodies like my son who are going to reign with him, who are going to be with you. Well, the first coming of Christ takes place. The church age takes place. We're living in it right now. Church age runs about 2,000 years. Starts with the death of Christ thereabouts and, and goes up to the rapture of the church. It's going to happen any moment. In fact, I got up this morning. I didn't think we'd be here. I thought we'd be gone by now. You say, you really believe that? I believe a lot of things that the average person don't believe, but I know they're true. Bible's a weird book. You ever know that people think that real Christians are weird? You know why real Christians are weird? Because they believe a weird book. If you take the side of the nation of Israel today, you're weird. We live in a day of white supremacists. We live in a day of anti-Semiticism. We live in a day when everybody's against the Jew. I'm going to tell you something. I live in a day, and I believe my Bible, where we ought to be for the Jew. I'm for them. I don't agree with where they're at in apostasy toward God, but the Bible says that, that, uh, that the, for the gospel's sake, they're my enemy, but for me to understand that for their sake, they're the beloved and the elect of God. God's going to restore them. It's just going to be a matter of time. Any time now should happen. Any time. That's why we don't close the doors. Now, if you really know your Bible, you know the doors don't make a difference. We're going up through the top anyhow. Just was trying to see if you were paying attention. You're all kind of a little grumpy this morning. Some of you ladies, I understand, it looks like you had a bad hair day, but that's okay. Didn't say who. Didn't say who. Didn't say who. Won't say who. Church aid takes place. One of these days, one of these nights, rapture is going to take place. In a moment of twinkling an eye, we're going to be gone. Oh, that's going to be a great time. Ah, that's going to be a great time. Somebody said, well, we're going to get to the judgment seat of Christ. Yeah, we are in a little bit, but we know where we're going. We're going to pick out our horses. We're going to get our horses. A lot of people died before us. I hope there's some left. I'll tell you one thing about, about the Bible. I read over there in a verse. Or in fact, it's down here a little bit farther on. It talks about somebody coming back on white jackasses. I always was afraid that was going to be me because by the time I got there, there wouldn't be anything left. We'd have to get one of them donkeys to come back on. I want a jet-powered stallion, man. I want something that's got afterburners on it, boy, that I hit the throttles and just go. I want something that's got double 40-millimeter cannons on both wings, man, and just come down and strafe them. 
You say, oh, you, no, you don't know your Bible very well. I know a place in the Bible where we're talking about the second coming of Christ. We come back where, they, where I'm standing there or you're standing there or somebody's standing there and an army guy of the, of the Antichrist comes up with a big sword or a big spear, a big bayonet, whatever the case be, and, and just goes to bayonet somebody and just goes right through him. And the guy looks at him and whack! He knocks him about a million light years over, man. That's the kind of battle I'm talking about. I don't need no MP5, no Glock 40, no M16. Boy, I just got the power of God, man. Just wipe you out. That's what he says. He says, this, out of his mouth goeth a sharp two-edged sword. He smite the nations. Well, I remember one time in the Gospels where the Lord turned around and the scribes and the Pharisees were there, and he just spoke the word and knocked them down. See, I don't believe that. Oh, I don't know. The first time I ever heard a man preach, it knocked me down. Rapture takes place. What a rapture takes place, the tribulation takes place. Seven years, the Antichrist finally thinks he won. He goes into the nation of Israel, the Bible says in the book of Thessalonians, and he sits down on the throne of God, and he does what he's always wanted to do. He calls himself God. And then here he comes. Antichrist turns on the nation of Israel. He hates them. He's going to make sure that they're not the people of God and the city of God. And he wipes them out. And then one day, one morning, here he comes. The Lord Jesus. Revelation chapter 19, as we already saw, he comes down, he wipes them out. Let me tell you something. This doctrine is so important and so powerful in the Bible and in the, in the history that you can't get away from it. It is so important and so powerful that in the Bible itself, every move, every move, from east to west in the Bible is a good move. That is the direction that Christ comes in the second coming of Christ. When Adam went into the garden to take of the tree of life, he went from east to west. When Abraham was called out, as I said, to go to Earl Chaldees, he went from east to west. When Jacob got right with God and went back to Bethel, it was east to west. When the Jew and in the land, God purposely brought him around there and brought him in from east to west. When they went back from the captivity, they went from east to west. I mean, when you went into the tabernacle of the Holy of Holies to lay the sacrifice down, you went from east to west. And when the wise men at birth of Christ, when they showed up, they said, we have seen his star in the where? In the east. And they traveled to the west and they found him. Every move in the Bible that is the absolute move that Christ makes when he comes back from east to west through that eastern gate is a good move. Everyone opposite is a bad move. When Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden, they go west to east. When Cain, lay, when Cain leaves the presence of God and uh, murderer and builds a city, he goes west to east. When Jacob backslides and runs from God, he goes west to east. When David ran from God, he goes west to east. When the Jew went into captivity, they went west to east. No, no, no. Horace Greeley had it right. He didn't know his Bible, but when he said go west, young man, he had the right direction. Can't beat it. That Bible's something else. I'll show you something else. You realize that in your Bible, there's two times in your Bible somebody's told to take their shoes off their feet. Two times. Once in Exodus chapter 3, verse 5, once in Joshua chapter 5, verse 15. In Exodus 3, chapter, uh, 3 verse 5, it is Moses and he's on Mount Sinai where he gets the Ten Commandments. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 15, it's Joshua, and he's on the Mount of Olives. Just like Zechariah. You know that Joshua means Jesus? You know that Moses is one of the greatest types of Christ in all, in all the Bible? You know that there's only two times you find in the Bible where somebody is told to take their shoes off. Why? Because their feet was tired? Because they had Bernie Itch and they had to put some uh, foot... No, no. The Bible says because the ground they're standing on is holy. That's weird. Two times. Only two. One on Mount Sinai. One on the Mount of Olives. Now, if you take your Bible and study that through the Old Testament, you know what you got there? You got the route of the Ark of the Covenant from when Moses gets the Ten Commandments to build that Ark and gets all that stuff going and the, in, the, in, the, in the wilderness journey they take right down through there and it brings them right up into the east side of Jerusalem. You know what you got? You got a picture of the route that Christ is going to take at the second coming of Christ when he comes back. What a book! Mount Sinai! From Mount Sinai, they go across Sinai through Edom, through Seir, going east 
go, uh, go in the right direction, going to the west, through Seir, through Paran, up the King's Highway, as it's called. My, 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 what's this? The King's Highway? Going east to west, up the east side of the Dead Sea, across Jordan, exactly the same spot that Christ is baptized on with John the Baptist, just a coincidence, to Gilgal. From Gilgal to Jericho. From Jericho right to the Mount of Olives. You realize that the Mount of Olives faces the eastern gate, and when you walk out the eastern gate, you know what you see? You see the Mount of Olives. That Bible says that the ground splits. When, that, when the Lord Jesus Christ steps off that horse and His foot touches the ground, the Mount of Olives splits asunder. And oh, Ezekiel chapter 43 verse 4 talks about those great eight chapters that talk about the second coming of Christ and the millennial reign of Christ. And it says that the glory of God goes into Jerusalem through the eastern gate. King of kings. Lord of lords. King of kings. Lord of lords. You say, Bob, that's so hard to believe. That's so hard to believe. Well, let me tell you something. I wouldn't want you to go home today in a believable state. So let me give you something that's even more harder to believe. Oh, you're going to like this. Maybe you won't. I like it. That's all that matters. Turn over the book of Ezekiel. Oh, you want a great prophecy? You, want to, you think I'm stretching all this? You think that the second coming of Christ isn't the most prevalent, important doctrine in all history? That even the moves in the Bible in the same direction Christ is coming isn't prevalent? Let me show you something here. You're going to love this. Ezekiel chapter 44, one of the greatest prophecies on the second coming of Christ in all the Bible, yet it's probably the least known. You probably have never heard this before. All the more you need to keep coming and hear me preach. I'll tell you a thing you never heard before. Some of them are true or some of them are not, but what's that got to do with it? They're all true. This one's true. Ezekiel chapter 44, oh, look at verse 1. Then he brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary which looketh toward the east, the eastern gate. And it was shut. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut. It shall not be opened. And no man shall enter in by it because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore it shall be shut. God says, No man except my son is going to come through that eastern gate. You know, all the time the Jews had Jerusalem, nobody went through that gate. They believed that prophecy. Oh, along about 1500, a man is born. His name is Suleiman. He becomes a great king of the Ottoman Empire, the Turks, who literally have taken all of the Middle East. He's heralded in history as Suleiman the Magnificent. The people around him thought he was so great and looked at him as a god that they called him the lawgiver, like God gave the Ten Commandments. Called him the magnificent, like Christ. And his reign over the Ottoman Empire spanned some 60, 70 years, and he built that empire, and he literally captured all of the Middle East. But then in 1543, he went up against Jerusalem. And he said, I'm God. And I want Jerusalem. They all want Jerusalem. Devil working through him said, I want it too. Go get it. You are the magnificent. You're the lawgiver. You fancy yourself to be God. I'm the real God, but go ahead. Get it for me. So his armies go in and they capture Jerusalem. And he's camped on the outside and Jerusalem has fallen and the Ottoman Empire has just taken the city of God. That eastern gate was closed. Suleiman knew the prophecy. Suleiman knew exactly what the Bible said. That's why he, Jerusalem has been the interest of every demon-crazed Gentile king and philosopher and the devil himself for 6,000 years. You know what Suleiman said? He said, tomorrow we're going into Jerusalem. And tomorrow... I'm entering the city through the eastern gate because I'm God. I'm the lawgiver. I'm the magnificent one. 
I'm going through that eastern gate. I'm going to sit out on that throne in Jerusalem and I'll show them who's king. Well, the best laid plans of mice and men. He goes to bed that night. I don't know what he had to eat before he went to bed. Sounds like it was a double cheese pepperoni pizza with extra mango and sauce, but he had a terrible nightmare. And in that nightmare, it terrified him. So, this is history. Go to any public library, any place in the city, in the world, look it up, it's there. Terrible nightmare. In a dream he has, he goes through that gate and God is waiting on the other side and God kills him. He wakes up in the morning terrified. The great magnificent, the great lawgiver. And you know what he does? He orders his men to wall up the eastern gate and in 1543 they walled it up and there's never been a man go through it since and to this day the eastern gate is walled up. You know why? It's reserved for somebody else. You can't beat that book. You can't beat history. You can't beat it. You can't beat it. That prophecy is standing today that was given back in the book of Ezekiel, back in the post-captivity, back in 600 B.C. And no one has gone through. It's reserved for the king. Suleiman died attacking uh, in, a, in battle, never having went through into Jerusalem. It's reserved. You see, I gave you three tests. I gave you the test of spiritual growth. That is, can you take somebody really salting your hide away with preaching? If you learn to like that, you're growing. I talked to you how to love the book. The test for that is, can you get through a day without reading it? Then I told you how the test for loving Christ was, and that is, if you had one prayer in your life, what would it be? Would it be, Lord, come back, or Lord, give me a new boat? But you see, in the course of putting those three in your life, you learn something about God and the Word of God. And you realize that the greatest doctrine in this world is second coming Christ, and the whole world is built around those three. You know, in the Bible, when the Lord comes back, the Bible says that there's the judgment seat of Christ, that at some point in time where it looks like that all of us take all the rewards that we get for what we've done down here on earth, and one by one we walk up to the throne. This is going to take a thousand years itself. It may take a million years. But you bring those rewards that you got at the judgment seat of Christ and you walk up, and you lay them at the feet of Jesus, and you give them back. You get them because you sacrificed and you suffered, and you paid a price for him. But ultimately, let's face it, it's him anyhow. So you get blessed and you get the reward, but there comes a day, it looks like in the Bible, when you come back into the throne for all the assembled universe, the Jews will be there, the Gentile nations will be there, every born-again believer ever saved will be there, and you walk up with all those rewards that you have, and you lay them at the feet of Jesus at the throne, and you step back and you say, Lord, they're yours. I did it because I loved you. The tragedy of that is this. A lot of God's people won't have anything to give down in fact, there's an old song they used to sing years and years ago. They don't sing it anymore, but it went something like this. Oh, must I go in empty-handed? A lot of God's people will. But you know what? There's no need to. In that Bible, the Bible talks about five crowns that you as a believer can get. Five of them. And they're so easy. And that would be a good question for somebody on Bible. I'm not going to give them to you. You go look them up yourself. But I'll tell you what, one of them, and one of them is the easiest. You know what the easiest one is? You get a crown for just loving him coming back. Whew, who couldn't get that? I doubt if most of God's people will ever get that one. Oh, you're, you're anxious about your Aunt Jenny coming back, and you're anxious about getting this back or getting your dividend return back, but not too many people just get up in the morning just waiting for the Lord to come back. But there's a crown. There's a crown. Oh, what a day it's going to be. You see, you know what a message like this does? And I know I try to jam a lot of Bible into an hour of sermon. But I'm going to tell you, you can't go out here getting a picture. The bottom line is this. God has a program. You know what the message like this does? It puts it in perspective for you. Because coming in here and leaving here, you probably came, <laughs> you probably came in here excited about one thing and you're leaving unexcited about something else. And the Word of God has a way of just bringing it all to sharp focus. And no matter how upset you get with me for what I say and how, what I preach, the bottom line is that the judgment seat of Christ, you're going to look back at me and say, Bob, I wish I'd have listened to you. Because the bottom line is, it's true. It's true. 
All history, all history is built around the nation of Israel and all history points to one event, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ at the second coming of Christ. Everything in history, everything in the Bible, and everything in our lives, and the preaching of this, from this pulpit in this church will always be second coming of Christ centered. That doesn't mean I'll preach on it every time, but it means every time I stand in this pulpit, you can be assured that I am looking for him to come back. I am looking for him to come back. Five crowns. Do you even know what they are? Do you even know where to find them? I'm going to give you a hint. The one for loving his appearance is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 8. It says God's going to give a crown when he appears to them that love is appearing. You can get that one just like that. At least have one. It's going to be a day. The reality. And yet I say that, and I know saying that, honest to goodness, I believe that what I'm about to say, I'm not just saying it. I believe that in this room, Probably 99.9999, if not all of you, are doing the very best you can to get where God wants you to be. Maybe you're not there yet, maybe you're not. But you know what? You're here this morning, and you're putting up with me. And you come back on Thursday night, other than the ones that have to work and can't get here, and I understand that. But you know what? You love God, and you're here because you want to learn. I'm not saying you're perfect, and I'm not saying you don't have some problems. We all got problems. God looks at your attitude of heart. And you know what? If God would come right now, right now, and you got saved last week. Or you were saved a long time ago, and you were just, and, and sometime this week, you said to God, God, I heard what Bob said Sunday, and I was there Thursday night, and Lord, I know I ain't done what I need to do. I, I, I know I got a lot of problems, but I want to tell you something. I want to be everything you want me to be. God, you got to help me. There ain't a lot of time left. I know I got a lot to learn, but Lord, I want to. If God would come five seconds after you ended that prayer, you know what? You'd have to give you everything that you would have got if you'd have done what you just said. Because God doesn't do it based on what you do. God gives you based on your attitude of heart. And if you can go through this life loving him honestly and loving that book, that's why I gave you the three little tests. That's why you ought to love good hard preaching. It keeps your heart right. That's why you ought to love the word of God more every day. That's why you ought to love God more than anything else in this life with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and all your strength. Because it's those attitude of heart attitudes that get you Everything with God. And, and, and God's people, uh, preaching today is so far removed from that. We're talking about stuff that is irrelevant to your life and irrelevant to where you are in your walk with God. Preachers today are just going to the Internet, getting some sermon that sounds classy and social and just laying it out. Hey, I'm telling you something. When I stand here in front of you, you can bet, you can, you're guaranteed of one thing. I have spent at least 9, 10, 12, 15 hours this week getting something from God that's going to mean something in your life when I get up here. I mean, I'm not the most honest guy in the world, but when it comes to this book, I am. And I just tell you, if I'm not going to preach the truth to you and do the work to give you one, then find somebody else to do it that will. Because I'm not. when I stand up here, I realize one thing. I'm going to give an account someday for everything I preach. And maybe some guys don't believe that. I believe it because I believe this book. I believe it. And I believe he's coming back. And I believe we got a short time and I believe that that's why we need to band together and do what we can do in these last days that we stand there that at least, at least when we have to walk in the throne room, we don't have to go in empty-handed. He's coming. He's coming. He's coming. Last prayer in the Bible. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Father.